Hey, Bridgetown, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. If you are new or visiting, my name is John Mark Comer, and I am co-teaching today with Bethany Allen, but due to the six-foot social distancing rule, we can't sit next to each other. Very sad, but she is here a few feet away, and in route, we save the best for last. On that note, we are three weeks into our spring practice on simplicity, which we use Richard Foster's definition for as an inward reality that manifests in an outward lifestyle, meaning long before simplicity is about how many things are in your closet or living room or kitchen, it's about the interior architecture of your heart. So we started off with a teaching on simplicity of heart, and then last week was simplicity of speech, and next up on the docket is simplicity of apparel. My wife was telling me the other day about how COVID-19 has forever changed the way we talk about pants. Apparently, in our new normal of work from home and kind of a waist up Zoom meeting, leggings for women and sweats for men are now just called pants and jeans are called hard pants. To put you at ease, even though my camera, the camera is just on my upper body, I promise you I'm a professional and I am wearing hard pants. And yet online shopping has actually gone up, not down in the pandemic, which begs the question, why? Why buy a new pair of hard pants when you can't go anywhere? Why go into debt in the middle of a global recession? But if you know anything about the fashion industry, it is not a surprise at all. Let me just give you a brief sketch. As recently as the 1960s, 95% of our clothing was made in America, and most people had a very simple wardrobe. Today, only 2% is made in the U.S., and the average American, not the rich, not, you know, the Paris Hilton stereotype, right down the middle of the bell curve, buys 70 items of clothing a year and seven pairs of shoes. The average woman has 30 outfits full complete in her closet and spends 100 hours a year shopping for clothes and another 40 shopping for shoes. One study from the UK found that most people wear an item of clothing just seven times before they toss it out. Think about the cost per wear on that shirt or pair of jeans. And there are all sorts of ethical implications for Western excess. One in six people in the world today, by best estimates, work in the fashion industry or in the garment industry. 80% of them are women, and 98% do not make a living wage. It's one of the great human rights issues of our day. As well as environmental implications. The fashion industry is the second worst pollutant after the oil industry. It uses five times more energy than the airline industry. One study found that the average American throws away 81 pounds of textile waste every single year. Materials like polyester, which are in ton of clothing now, are creating vast islands of plastic in the sea and even seeping into our water supply and our own body. My point is, for most Western people, the number one area of life most in need of the practice of simplicity or put another way, with the most excess and waste and injustice and environmental degradation is our wardrobe. But I actually don't want to talk to you about that today. Every fall, we host a lecture in our Sweatshops and Justice series, and we have hours of content available for free and all of that on our site. I want to talk about what's underneath that. 
at a psycho-spiritual level. Why do we buy hard pants when we can't go outside and put a new outfit on our visa in the middle of a recession? Why do we wear a shirt seven times on average and then toss it? Why? That's not prefrontal cortex. That's something much deeper in the human condition. What is underneath there? Well, Luke chapter 12, take a look at what Jesus has to say about our complex emotional relationship to clothing. We were here just a few weeks ago to kick off our teaching series, but the level of literary sophistication of Luke's gospel is off the charts. There are layers to every single page. So we've done the basic exegetical work. Now let's dig a little bit deeper. Luke 12, verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink, do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father, he knows that you need them. But seek, and in Greek it's the same word used just a moment before for runs after, the, but run after the kingdom of God, and these things will be given to you as well. Notice that Jesus uses the word worry four times in the teaching. The word is merimanao in Greek, and New Testament scholar Scott McKnight defines it as an internal disturbance. Jesus' invitation is to a life free of the internal disturbance of worry. How does that sound to you? A life where you are just at ease in your own body and with your soul. But notice also Jesus' two examples of what it is that human beings worry about, food and clothing. Now, think about that. Food makes sense. If you're an ancient first century Galilean and you're poor and you have no food in your kitchen or you know, money in your bank account, you are under threat of death within days or weeks. Of course you would worry about food scarcity. Many do, not only in the past, but in the present, not only around the world, but right here on our own city, and in particular in COVID-19. But clothing, does that strike you as just a little bit odd to worry about? I mean, you only need one outfit, and in theory, it would last you for many years, if not longer, if, you know, push come to shove. Why do we worry about clothing? Jesus here is tapping into a much deeper kind of worry about our body itself. But pay close attention to his language in the text. He ties our fear for our body, not to food, but to clothing. Meaning the fear he has in mind is less our fear of disease and death, but an even deeper fear of how we appear in our body to the world. Now, where else in the library of scripture do we read a story about food, 
clothing and worry about the body and how we appear. If you know your Bible, it's on page three. Turn there, Genesis chapter three. Go ahead and turn there. None of this phone stuff. Like, take your Bible, turn there if you're up for it. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden or touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, pause there. We often gloss over the fact that what theologians call original sin had to do with food, as if it might have well had to do with, you know, not paying our taxes on time or not driving the speed limit. But the temptation had to do with food. And watch what happens as a result. Seven, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the first mention of clothing in scripture. The word coverings literally means a girdle or a loin cover for private parts. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Man, that last line is just replete with layers of meaning. I was afraid. This is the first mention of fear in Scripture. Why was he afraid? Because I was naked, meaning I was aware of my shame and my sin in my body, so I hid. Skip down to 22. Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Notice that in the story, clothing is a response to sin. Both Adam and Eve and God make clothes in response to sin, but humans make clothes to hide. God makes clothes to provide. Humans are motivated by fear, fear of their sin and their shame. They make clothing in a vain attempt to hide their sin and shame from God and other people. But God is motivated by love. He makes clothing for Adam and Eve to care for and cover their sin and shame. Humans in the story sew fig leaves together, not like a great attempt at fashion, but God makes garments. The Hebrew word for garments, kutonet, and it's the same word that's used later in Genesis for Joseph's coat, and then in Exodus for the high priest's robe. Scholars point out this is likely the first mention of animal sacrifice in scripture, or what theologians now call substitutionary atonement, as the clothing is made from skin or leather. 
So on the one hand, God is the original fashion designer and clothing is a gift to cover our shame and our sin in our body with beauty from God himself. On the other hand, we live with shame and with fear over our body itself. Shame and fear are interrelated emotions. Shame is the feeling that we are bad, not that our behavior is bad, but that we are bad and beyond love. And the fear in the story is the fear that other people will see we are naked, meaning see that we are bad and beyond love. It comes as no surprise then that human beings have a complex emotional relationship with clothing. And this is something that, in all honesty, you just rarely hear people talk about. I grew up in the church, and up until about 10 years ago, you would hear people talk about clothing and modesty, not anymore due to third-wave feminism and the body positivity movement. More on that in a few minutes from Bethany, not from me. And in our church, we do talk on a regular basis about clothing and labor ethics, but rarely, if ever, do we talk about what's under the excess of fashion and all of that the deep stuff of shame and fear. And we need to, because the one and only thing in all of reality that can heal our shame and assuage our fear is the love of God. Not just love in general, but the love of God, what the New Testament calls perfect love. I think of John's line, perfect love casts out fear. When we realize that God is our loving provider, not an angry tyrant in the sky, that he clothes us, that he cares for us just as we are with all of our sin, then and only then can we get free of shame and the fear under that shame. And before I turn it over to Bethany, let me just say this is a tender subject for many of us, myself included. Bethany comes at this conversation as a woman in a hypersexualized culture. I come at it from a family of origin where there was a lot of binge dieting. I remember going on the cabbage soup diet when I was in middle school, and there were a lot of body image issues on both sides of my family. And that's not a critique of my family. I love my family. But as an adult, I struggle with my body image. I love that summer is here, but in all honesty, I dread the poolside barbecue where I have to take off my shirt in front of my friends or even my family. So this is a tender subject, but let us open up our heart to what scripture has to say. Here's Bethany with the New Testament. Hey everyone, turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter two. Like John Mark said, we're gonna take a deeper look at what the New Testament scriptures have to say about clothing, and more specifically about the ways our fear and sin and shame can show up and influence not only our relationship to ourselves in clothing, but also to other people as well. So first, let's take a look at what Paul has to say. 1 Timothy chapter two, verses eight through 10. Here, Paul writes, Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Okay. So here we pick up and find Paul writing to Timothy. He starts out this passage with an encouragement for the church to be people whose lives are both quiet and peaceful. 
marked by godliness and holiness. And in verse nine, after he addresses the disruptions and distractions he sees in the behavior of the men in the church of Ephesus, he moves on to address the specific disruptions and distractions he finds among the women, specifically their clothing. Now, stay with me. I know that there are many whose experience with this verse has in the past been less than positive and maybe even injurious due to both the misinterpretation and weaponization of it. But let me speak to what I think Paul is getting at here. In this verse, he says that women should adorn themselves in modest apparel, not, he says, with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Now, very often this idea of modesty addressed here in this verse is interpreted as dressing in such a way that you accentuate your female sexuality as to incite lust in men. But in context, that's actually not Paul's emphasis. His exhortation here, I believe, is threefold. First, he says that women should dress modestly. Modesty here is far less about sexuality and more about socioeconomic realities in the church. One way to get attention is to dress in such a way that it actually highlights your beauty. Another way is to dress in such a way that you highlight your wealth. Both create a distraction and division in the church. The women Paul is speaking about here were a distraction at the gatherings, not necessarily because they were covered in certain areas, but because what they were wearing told a story contrary to the humility and life of someone in the kingdom. Braids, gold, pearls, these were all symbols of status and wealth. They were a very loud statement, and wearing them brought attention and division, which ultimately showed a lack of honor and regard for others and disrupted the unity and peace of the gathering. This call to modesty here by Paul is not an act of shaming, but rather an appeal to love, to unity, and to kingdom life. Second, Paul encourages them to dress modestly and to do so with decency and propriety. Now, these two words actually help frame what he's getting after. In the Greek, propriety here is defined as a sound mind or being sober-minded and self-controlled when it comes to what you wear. Paul says that we're to dress with propriety, but also we're to dress with decency. Now, decency here implies that there's both a standard and a responsibility in how they were to dress ultimately confronting the motivation behind the wearing of the apparel. Is it for attention? Is it to manipulate how others would perceive them? Is it to get deep needs met within? Here, propriety and decency are at their core about the consideration and impact our clothing has on others. Finally, we read that they should adorn themselves with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now here, Paul gets to the heart of the issue. He says, instead of focusing on what you look like on the outside, direct your time and energy to the internal work of spiritual formation or transformation. Let what is beautiful and good and attractive about who you are come from the inside, which is, he says, appropriate or expected for someone who would profess Jesus. Now, this text affirms for all, men and women alike, that, simply put, clothing matters. So much so that it actually has the power to disrupt and divide a gathering of God's people. And that reality is no less true today. There's a correlation between our dysfunctional relationship with clothing, how it attempts to meet our needs or how we use it to manipulate others and spiritual disruption in the kingdom. 
With that, I want us to look at one more passage. So turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 3. And it's there that Peter writes this. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. Okay, so when we jump in here, we're actually jumping into the middle of a passage of scripture all about how submission is necessary and vital in the life of the apprentice of Jesus. Now, don't let that word submission turn you off, or freak you out, or shut you down. The idea here is simply a practice rooted in trusting God. It's the freedom to yield your preferences to another out of love for them and trust in God, which leads Peter to his next exhortation. In verse 3, he addresses women, specifically wives, and you'll notice that the language he uses is very similar to that of the language of Paul. Beauty, he says, should come from the inside, and what the original language here refers to as the person of the heart. It doesn't come from outward adornment, things like hairstyles, jewelry, or clothing. Now, in this verse, Peter is actually calling out the use of those things as a means to, in so many words, manipulate the people around you. He's saying, don't use these outside entities to present or project to the world what you want them to believe about you or your beauty, or to cover up or compensate for what you feel you lack. Hence, why he says in verse 4 that beauty actually comes from the inside. Again, emphasizing and elevating spiritual transformation as one of the greatest means of attraction and beauty. Now, in verse 4, he goes on to say that this beauty is marked by a quiet and gentle spirit. Now, quiet and gentle here translate to meek and humble and peaceful, or a soul at rest. So what Peter is saying is that we're to give our energy to cultivating the inner beauty that has the capacity to grow over the years rather than the external beauty that will decline with age, no matter how beautiful you are. Jesus, Paul, and Peter are all connecting the realities of clothing and image to the human condition. And for many of us, there is a very real and personal tension in that. The temptation could be to assume that what's being said is restrictive or archaic at best, that it's all about control or oppression and manipulation. But in fact, the opposite is true. The brilliance of these texts is that their emphasis is not on what we can't do. It's all about what we can do to actually be free. These aren't restricted restrictions based on a power play. They aren't lists of behavior modifications that limit our personal freedom. The deeper aim of Peter and Paul and Jesus is that we would experience a true and expanded freedom, that we would actually be released from our innate responses to fear and shame. Now, before we storm our closets and burn all our clothes, there are a couple significant value shifts we need to make in order to practice the simplicity of clothing. First, we'll have to shift from this idea of fashion to style. Now, fashion, by definition, is a time-restricted trend or product of the moment that is often costly and mindless and reproducible. It's fueled by consumption, meaning it has an insatiable reality to it and will demand more and more in order to be sustained. You just can't keep up with it. Style, on the other hand, is a means of creativity and agency, 
and it can be deeply satisfying. It's a timeless practice that's fueled by personal creativity and expression. Famous French fashion designer Yves Sue Laurent put it best when he said, fashion fades, but style is eternal. If we're gonna work towards simplicity, we'll have to embrace a new framework altogether. Next, we have to make the shift from excess to limits. We live in a no limit, more is better, never enough culture, where excess is not only the norm, but the goal and unspoken expectation for all of us. And while I think a lot of us would like to believe we have good limits around the things, especially our clothing, I think if we took a hard look, we would be surprised. Statistically speaking, the odds are not in our favor. According to the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals, most people wear 20% of their clothing 80% of the time, which means in theory, we could throw away 80% of our wardrobes and never feel a thing. Yikes. Now I know for many, myself included, setting limits can feel like I'm excluding myself from something important or good. But see, that's the great illusion and lie of it all. Limits actually provide us the opportunity and ability to see and enjoy and know what we have. Limits provide margin and room to explore and create and enjoy. If we're going to move towards simplicity, we'll have to not only accept, but embrace some form of limits. Now, of course, this will look different for everyone, depending on your gender or socioeconomic status or relationship status, so on. The important thing is to set parameters for what is and will be enough. Lastly, we'll have to shift from our idealist denial to realistic acceptance. In this conversation, there is a very real and subversive enemy keeping many of us from living a life of simplicity. And that enemy is what I like to call idealist denial. So much of what we buy, specifically in the realm of apparel, is connected to the future ideal of what we either hope to become, believe we will become, or just want to become, regardless of the raw materials. We buy clothing that is a size smaller in the hopes and belief that we'll fit into it one day. We buy anti-aging products or reach for the latest process or procedure, hoping and believing that it will not only delay, but somehow reverse the aging process. We buy cologne, the younger style, the tighter jeans, in the hopes that we will be and fit the image of what we consume. Idealism really is slavery. It's a self-perpetuating engine of fear and it makes a mess of us. It robs us of our ability to make peace with where and who we are in a healthy way. And it forces us to spend our energy fighting what we are at the expense of who we may become. Men, your strength will go. And women, our beauty will fade. But the question is, will we, instead of fighting these truths, begin the journey of accepting our reality, decaying bodies and all, as hard as it is, embracing who God has made us and is making us, letting go of the elusive ideal for the sake of a simplified, peaceful, and ultimately more satisfying and beautiful life? Or will we continue in the exhaustive, cyclical pursuit of the ideal. 
That said, our practice for the week ahead is all up at practicingtheway.org slash simplicity. This is our first official minimalism exercise. Drum roll, I can't wait for it. There are three basic steps to it. Number one is just to take every, if you're up for it, take everything out of your closet and put it all in a pile on your bed or on the floor. Number two, sort that pile into five kind of sub piles. One, a giveaway pile, clothes you just are ready to give away to your family or people in need or whatever it is. Two, sell, stuff you wanna sell on Poshmark or Buffalo Exchange when it's open again or whatever. Three, um, you know, it's likely not a large one, but a throwaway or a recycle pile for anything that's kind of beyond repair. And then four, a weight pile. Now this, just insider lingo, this is a key pile. One of the first things that you will discover if you've never done this before is just how attached we are to our clothing at a psycho-spiritual level. And a great tactic to know how to deal with those pair, you know, that pair of shoes that you overspent on but you don't really like or really wear but you feel weird to get rid of or that sweater from your mom you're like, what if she comes to visit or whatever it is? A great way to deal with that or navigate that in an emotional level is just to put anything that you have a question mark around that you're not sure on into a pile or right into a bag or to a box and then put a time on it, like three to six months is what I would recommend and stick it in a hall closet or in a garage or underneath your bed or whatever and then forget about it. If at any point in time, something that you put in, a piece that you love, you're like, oh, I really wish I still had that jacket or whatever, great, don't beat yourself up. Just go get it out and put it on to wear again. But more than likely, the vast majority, I've done this three times in my closet and one time did I ever take something out of the bag. The vast majority of the time, you will not even remember what you put in there. And then when you come back three to six months later, it's easy at an emotional level to let go. Third step is to set a self-imposed limit on the number of items in your wardrobe that you pick, not me. So we have a few suggestions or really just ideas for you to consider at kind of whatever level you wanna dive in. The first is what is called Project 333. This was started by Courtney Carver, who basically kicked off the capsule wardrobe craze and now has a video course out and a book you're welcome to read. The idea is to live with 33 items for three months, which is a great way to say like all of this is just kind of an experiment in a living, an experiment experiment in the way of Jesus. Her beautiful line is simple is the new black, which is great. Another idea that's a little bit more serious is the 10 item wardrobe. You can watch a great TED talk on this from Jennifer Scott. Her basic pitch is that most European women limit their wardrobe to 10 pieces, not including like undergarments or, you know, athletic wear or whatever, in part because European homes are older and don't have closets, much less walk-in closets. But she makes a really compelling case for a 10-item wardrobe as more than enough for American women and men as well. And then third, like the kind of black diamond level, is the uniform, which has long been adopted by monks and nuns, as well as artists, intellectuals, and world leaders to give kind of the maximum amount of space in their mind and heart for spirituality or creativity or just a life of impact. Steve Jobs, of course, is famous for this with his black turtleneck, Levi's jeans, and New Balance tennis shoes. Literally, just that was his closet. 
Albert Einstein wore the exact same suit every single day. Mark Zuckerberg is famous for the gray t-shirt and jeans. Rock stars often wear the exact same outfit for an entire album or world tour. And while it is, in all honesty, more common for guys, it's not only a strategy that is used by men. Women use it to level the playing field with men at work, as well as for other reasons. There's a great, it's just a fun, short blog post from Alex Gregory for J. Crew about why she wears a uniform as a 20-something in New York City. For her, it's like a black turtleneck jeans and black boots. She writes about how, quote, wearing a uniform is also a way of asserting your status as a protagonist. And then she writes about children's stories, the reason why characters in picture books never change their clothes. Children's, like adults, if they only admit it, crave continuity. And she calls it a cheap and easy way to feel famous. One note on the uniform is for the sake of laundry and those of us that are a little obsessive about cleanliness, like myself, most people who adopt a uniform have multiple copies of the same, you know, t-shirt or jeans or whatever it is. So that's just a few ideas. There are more for you to chase down. One final thing to note, this could be really fun exercise for you to do with your community or your roommate or a family member. Just order a pizza, open a bottle of wine, take everything out of your closet, post something on Instagram, a before and after picture, whatever you want to do and have fun with it. Now, this may sound far too radical for you, but the spiritual director Jan Johnson in her book on simplicity defines simplicity as a letting go of things others consider to be normal. And remember, all of this is invitation, zero pressure from us. We make invitations, you make decisions. For me, simplifying my clothing has never been on the to-do list. Not really, anyway. Simplicity is not my strong suit, nor is it something that comes naturally to me. And honestly, it wasn't until we began to map out this practice that I actually began to understand why. Growing up, we didn't have a lot of money for extra things like clothes or the latest fashions. We went to Payless and hoped that we'd find shoes without logos on them so people wouldn't know where we got them. We went to the outlets, but not even like the nice outlets. And when we did, it was on a rare occasion. And that was even before the season when my mom left. And when that happened, nice or new clothing was only a luxury and it was a rarity. I also grew up in the South where there is a cultural expectation to look and present in a certain way. And that's not as crude or as obvious as it sounds, but it is there. And that is very much a part of my worldview when it comes to clothing and stuff. So when we began to talk about this practice, specifically about getting to the heart of simplicity, I realized that there was some injury in me really some unreconciled fears and lies that I had been believing about my security, about my worth and my safety connected to my past. I hold on to clothes and I have a good bit of them, though I fit the statistic of wearing 20% of them 80% of the time. And what I've realized and really am realizing is that I've struggled to simplify, even mentally argued against simplifying not only my closet, but other things in my life because I'm afraid and because I have been putting my trust in stuff and what it can do for me over trusting God. Now, I know that sounds strong, but it's true. I've allowed an old scarcity mentality of you never know when you're gonna be able to buy clothes again and the image expectation of you need to look a certain way to show up or be accepted to rule my closet and keep me from freedom 
from stuff, yes, but in the bondage of my past as well. Now, I know that all of us are coming from this from different places, that some of you, this comes easier to, and others it doesn't. Some of you are like me and are letting narratives and lies keep you from even exploring this practice. And still, others are paralyzed by the thoughts of having to let stuff go. But wherever you are, our hope is that today, through Jesus's presence and kindness, you'll hear the invitation, not just to clean out your closet, but to start by inviting God's spirit to reveal in you any attachments or fears or beliefs that could keep you from this freedom that is rightfully yours in Jesus. It may not, and it probably won't be easy, but it will be good. Thanks for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. As you know, we are nearing completion on our building renovation project right here in the inner east side of Portland. And we hope to move in as soon as possible, depending on what happens with this whole coronavirus shutdown. But without having Sundays um, gatherings, we're a little bit vulnerable financially. So for those of you who are part of Bridgetown, thank you for your continued giving. And if you're not part of Bridgetown, would you consider giving above and beyond what you already do to your local church? We would love any kind of partnership towards completing this building project. You can find out more for that or give online at our website, bridgetown.church/giving.